0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 116 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is The Wheatgrass Warrior, an interview with Ashley Iovinelli. My name is Richard Johansson,
1: And I'm Matt Sabatello.
0: Matt, Ashley is another one of the really cool women from Chicago who's doing great work in the Lyme community. And Ashley's journey started when she was a television industry news anchor for NBC. She was also a sports broadcaster, and then ultimately she moved into the digital marketing and public relations arena. She was also an integrative nutrition coach at the time that she had gotten sick. And her illness, unfortunately, prevented her from continuing to work in the marketing and public relations arena.
1: Rich, what I find most surprising about Ashley's journey is that as an integrative nutrition coach, she tried to treat first with natural solutions and found her symptoms kept getting worse and worse. She then pivoted to oral antibiotics and her Lyme symptoms continued to worsen there as well. And it wasn't until IV antibiotics were introduced as you started to really
0: heal from Lyme disease. Matt, I'm really excited to introduce the weak rest warrior, Ashley Ivanelli, to the Tick Bootcamp community. Hey, Ashley, and welcome to the program.
2: Thanks for having me.
0: Uh, we're really blessed to have you, and we really can't wait for you to share all of the uh, Lyme hacks and tips that you're going to share with our listeners. So, Ashley, can you share with us and our listeners uh, where you live?
2: Yeah, so I live in a suburb of Chicago. It's called Naperville. Um, I was born in this area, uh, raised here. Our first house was in this area. We moved from a couple towns over, but I've stayed within the general vicinity. Um, We're about like a half hour from the city.
0: And uh, when you say us, are you talking about you and your family?
2: Yes, Um, I'm married. So my husband and we have a five-year-old son.
0: So are you currently working? I am. And what type of work do you do now?
2: So I have my own business. It's called Wheatgrass Warrior. And I'm a certified integrative nutrition health coach. Um, I work with clients to help them on their health and wellness journey. And I also partner with uh, large food companies to help develop healthy recipes using their products and um, provide awareness on those products. And it's a lot of things that um, my family and I use. So I only work with companies that I can truly appreciate and say that I actually use the products that they make.
0: And and that is really cool. And I can't wait to talk more about that with you. But I want to walk all the way back now to uh, your childhood and where you grew up and what your childhood was like. So talk to us about uh, where you grew up and what your childhood was like.
2: Yeah. So like I said, I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. I am the oldest of four girls. So As you can imagine, we uh, always had a busy house. Um, We now, two of my sisters live in Arizona, so it's just two of us left in the Chicago area. I don't blame them for leaving. (laughs) Much better weather there. But I grew up, you know, a pretty, what I would call typical childhood. Um, I was involved in a lot of activities. I did gymnastics, cheerleading, soccer. Um, I was a varsity soccer captain in high school. So, you know, lived a pretty, um, active and physical, you know, childhood and throughout my youth. Um, we did a lot of family vacations. Um, always, you know, the best way to describe it is like always on the go. Um, we were always, just doing something fun. Like I said, whether it was going on vacations or going to sporting events, um, that's a huge thing for our family is we're huge, huge Chicago sports fans. So a lot of my childhood and growing up revolved around sports. Um, And that was just something that we could come together on and really find joy through. And that continues to this day with my son too. And you know, taking him to games and, um, you know, it's just a way that our family is able to really relate to each other. And like I said, just kind of experience that joy.
0: So what were your dreams and goals when you were a child? What were you seeking to pursue when you grew up?
2: So they changed a lot, I will say, as um, time went on. You know, I um, initially when I went through, um, college, I wanted to be on TV and be a journalist. So that was my original goal, um, to be like a TV reporter. And in college, I worked at, um, the show extra in Los Angeles for a summer as an intern, um, went to a bunch of red carpet events and stuff and, you know, got some experience in that. And then I worked with a couple news stations, um, throughout my college as well in um, the Ohio area, cause our school was near Toledo. So that was kind of my first ambition was, I knew that I wanted to um, do something with television and to kind of be a storyteller, whether it was through um, a reporter or producing something in that area. So that was the you know, first kind of big dream that I had.
0: And were you ultimately able to succeed in achieving that dream? And if you didn't or did, what did you pivot to?
2: So I did. I um, initially, after college, I moved out to North Dakota uh, to take a news job with NBC. So I was what you call a one-man band reporter slash anchor with NBC, which means. I had to go around and film the stories and interviews throughout the day by myself. That means with the camera too. So I had to carry this like 50 pound camera, set it up to get ready for my interviews. Um, Then I would come back to the news station and I would write the show, meaning producing. So I would go into the software and time everything out, write the copy. And then I had to do my hair and makeup and get ready to go live at, Um, there was two shows we did. So it was like a true one man band experience um, for Montana and North Dakota. And um, it was definitely, you know, one of the wildest experiences. Um, And then after that, I moved back to Chicago. um, And I went into producing with a company called Inner Sport, and they do sports production. So I worked with them for a little bit. We did a couple shows. Um, There was one with Roger Federer. We did a show about the Masters for CBS. So they were kind of longer format um, specials that we did. Um, So I did, you know, get my feet wet in that industry for a little bit. And, you know, it's, it's tougher than people think. I will say that.
0: So, actually, when did you first begin to show the symptoms of what you now know to be a tick disease?
2: So, the first symptoms that I can recall was back in two thousand eighteen, or no, I'm not two thousand eighteen. Sorry, when I was twenty eight, I'm I'm trying to think of the year here. Um, I was twenty eight, so it was several years ago, um, and it was in like the late spring of that year that I had the first symptoms.
0: And where were you on your career path at the time you first began to show the symptoms of your tick disease?
2: At that time, I had, I had left the um, TV industry. I had transitioned into marketing and PR. So during that time, I was working um, with law firms and lawyers. Um, we were a legal marketing agency, and I worked with them for several years. So I was doing um, digital marketing and PR for them.
0: And how did your developing tick disease symptoms impact your capacity to perform your work in the public relations arena?
2: Looking back, it was tough. Um, I just remember it was difficult to even be at a desk all day, Um, just due to the pain and discomfort. Um, I found it hard to be in the office and to be sitting all day. And then from a cognitive standpoint, um, I just, I felt very overwhelmed easily because I had a lot of work on my plate and um, it just felt like as time went on, it was harder and harder to do the same job that I had always done because I'm a very type A person and you you give me something to do and I'm gonna (laughs) run with it way farther than I probably should. So I wasn't able to, Um, you know, stand up to my usual self in terms of like, I'm going to produce, you know, the best of the best. Um, It was kind of a just getting by at that point.
0: So let's talk about that window of time that we've just explored where you, between your youth and the age of 28, what, if anything, did you know about ticks and Lyme disease during that window of your life?
2: Nothing. Nothing.
0: Had you ever heard of ticks? Did anybody ever teach you how to remove a tick? Did you ever get any educational information from your family or from, from um, either your college education or your high school education, anything at all?
2: I had heard of ticks and I had heard of Lyme disease, but and the only thing I remember about hearing about Lyme disease was somebody I knew that their knee got swollen or something, and that was it. Um, that was about my extent. I never was shown what to do if you get one um, you know we I had zero education on it, and I guess I did also hear about it through the vet because our dogs had always been on um, some type of flea and tick preventative
0: okay so you're twenty years old you're beginning to show these symptoms um, and you go from being someone who was a, who was uh, creating producing and um, and I guess presenting all of the news for a whole community in, uh, in Dakotas, in the Dakotas, to now, uh, now working at a public relations firm and you're not even able to do your work. So what are you thinking about and how is that, um, how is that affecting um, your decisions to go to seek help from the medical community?
2: Yeah, it was tough. And before I knew what was wrong with me, I made a decision to leave my job. And I had no other job to go to, but we just felt like I was not well enough to continue at the pace that I was at. So it was a really tough decision. Um, Being that my income helped contribute to the family, um, having a son, um, it was definitely a very, you know, mixed emotions. And it was something that was really tough to walk away from initially.
0: Now what impact did this have on your family? Let's talk about your family first. What impact did your illness have on your child and what impact did your illness have on your husband?
2: Yeah, I think this is one thing that's not talked about enough. How much Lyme disease impacts the people around you who aren't necessarily sick, but who have to go through the journey with you. I would say that our family went through this thing together. So when I was having a bad day, everybody was having a bad day Um, because it's not easy to see a loved one suffer. Um, It's not easy to see someone you care about, you know, crying in pain or unable to do simple things. Um, So I would say that all three of us were impacted by this thing. Almost equally in some ways. I mean, obviously, different journeys as I'm the patient, but I would say that it just had a tremendous impact on everybody.
0: Now, I I want to focus on the time that you spent between getting sick, losing your job, but before you received your diagnosis. Was there ever a time that you started to sense that either your son or your husband were sick of you being sick and maybe weren't sure that you were sick as you were presenting?
2: So there was about a year and a half from the time that I first had a symptom to when I got diagnosed and started treatment. And I will say that um, for my immediate family, they were pretty supportive. Um, My husband was there every step of the way um, when one doctor would tell us, you know, they don't know what's wrong or that we need to see someone else or they would say, we have to wait it out and see what happens. And then maybe we'll know what the diagnosis is. Um, He agreed to not give up and, you know, kept on the journey with me and would drive me to all the different appointments because at this point um, driving was really difficult. So he missed a lot of work and, um, you know, other things in his life to step into this caregiver role. Now, what kinds of
0: things do you think, you weren't able to honor by way of commitments to your husband? Were there some promises that you made to your husband, either, either verbally or implicitly, about the way each of you would care for one another that you weren't able to honor when you were going through this diagnostic journey?
2: Um, I would say more so just about not necessarily like big commitments, but in the day-to-day, like being a mom and a wife, um, simple things that even as a human, you should be able to do, um, you know, household tasks and things like that, that shouldn't be an issue for anybody, um, became difficult. So I think more so in like the routine of a family life that I wasn't able to live up to that expectation, um, especially having a young son and not being able to maybe do everything that a mom should be able to do and losing some independence. So not being able to go as many places on my own and things like that. Um, So I definitely think if that would be one aspect that was affected.
0: And, And did you sense that your husband was getting frustrated with not really having a partner to do some of the things that he and you would expect you to be able to do in caring for your child and caring for each other?
2: at times yeah i'll say that um you know we had our fair share of arguments and um you know little disagreements that was really just mounting frustration and stress just pure stress that we were all feeling um just because of one person having to take on you know an entirely um other role right like he's working full-time But then he's got to step up and do more around the house. And he was always great at helping with stuff. But, you know, having to step up and almost at some days, you know, be two parents, because depending on how I was doing, um, what phase of the treatment or how I was feeling, you know, there's just some days where you're just not able to do much.
0: Now, you spoke a little bit earlier about the financial stresses that were put upon your family because you went from being a two uh, income-earning family to a one-income-earning family. Can you talk to us about some of the additional financial stresses that were placed on the family with you needing additional care that may or may not have been covered by insurance?
2: Yeah, so the financial stress of this disease was devastating. Um, I, I think we're still recovering from the financial stress that we went through. Um, you know, it's bad enough to only be able to have one parent contribute. Um, but then to find out how much these treatments cost, I mean, we're talking upwards of 4,000 a month at one point out of pocket. So that doesn't mean like, Oh, you owe them. It means you put that on your credit card each week. So the financial stress took a lot out of us. Um, I think it, it, exhausted us um, almost on a soul level. It was just something so, um, so difficult, but also looking back so necessary because it really pushed us to change our mindset around money and finances. And we were able to really create a new way of uh, a new lifestyle and a new way of looking at money that has now really benefited our family and allowed us to get through that process.
0: Can you give us some more details on how your mindset went from what it was to what it is now so that you are getting through that process in a healthy way?
2: Yeah. So I think initially it was, how are we going to pay for this? How are we going to afford this? There's no way we can afford this. Um, you know, this is expensive. This is, you know, we will never recover from this. Um, to our mindset now is after going through what we went through month to month, we always have the faith and the uh, positive outlook that we will pay for it. So some months we didn't know like where the money was going to come from. And I have to tell you, like it was almost became exciting (laughs) at some points to see like where that extra money was going to come in from. And a really funny story is there was one point, um, It was, I was not diagnosed yet, but I was not working anymore. And we just, that's when we said there was one night I'll never forget. We were like, we are going to make this financially work. I don't know how, but we're going to do it. And we looked at each other and we said, we are going to do this. And we're putting our faith in God and, you know, going to have a positive mindset on this. And no matter what, we're going to do this. We're going to have the money we need to pay the mortgage, pay for medical, you know, get through this. And it was that weekend. It was my mom's birthday. And we went to a casino with her because she enjoys that. And I never usually do that stuff. And she, um, they took us to dinner and we were just doing a couple games and stuff. And I ended up hitting a jackpot for almost $12,000. So it was like, and that covered expenses for like the next like four months. So Pretty unreal.
0: So your financial journey was one that took you from doubt to faith.
2: Oh yeah. After that, it was like our level of faith, you know, and since then, you know, so many different ways, odd uh, jobs that come in and, you know, opportunities and things, it's just been, you know, such a interesting journey, you know, but we've made it, we've made it work.
0: So now let's step outside of your family and talk about your larger social circle. Did you have any challenges and did you lose any friends as a consequence of not being able to be the friend that you had been because you were on this illness journey?
2: Yeah, I would say that the social aspect of Lyme disease was one of the toughest, actually. Um, After the financial and physical um, stress, I would say that the social um, stress and disappointment that came was was really actually so impactful, you know, I think at times add, added to the stress of the illness. Um, we had a really, um, big group of friends and we were very social people, um, before Lyme disease. We were always going to sporting events and, uh, traveling and, you know, every weekend it was like, what are we going to do? Um, we never sat around. We just, we always, Um, wanted to be around people. And that's just who we are or who we were, I should say. Um, And so it was very disheartening and disappointing when I got sick that there was just a lot of people and friends that just didn't understand. Um, And I'm not saying that it was intentional, but, you know, there's a lot of people that don't know about this disease and a lot of people are unwilling to learn about it. So, we really did, um, we did lose some friends and that was a grieving process for our whole family. And it wasn't something that we got over overnight. Um, I, I can remember, I mean, spending, like I said, I'm supposed to be focusing on healing, but there's so many times where I'm sitting there and I'm grieving, you know, these friends that we lost because it was just, um, it was such, such a big impact on us um you know to not have these people step up and support us when we needed them the most
0: so let's now talk about your your journey with uh, the medical community when did you first start seeing doctors for your symptoms and how did your medical journey develop
2: so the first time i went to a doctor was after the initial looking back the initial first symptom was unexplainable pain um i was somebody who worked out and exercised like five, six days a week. So I got sidelined. It started in my back and it felt like I almost injured myself or pulled a muscle, but it wasn't getting better. Um, This went on and on and it was, you know, hindering me from being able to go to the gym and do the things that I enjoyed. So I went into an orthopedic doctor and they did some x-rays and stuff and, They were like, well, you know, it looks like you have some muscle spasms, but, you know, nothing major that we can see. So they kind of sent me on my way after that. It was kind of like a, here's some um, ibuprofen gel, put it on, and, like, hopefully this will get better, you know, in a few weeks.
1: Actually, did it get better after a few weeks?
2: It did not. (laughs) So after that – It turned into, it went, actually went up my body. So then it was kind of in my upper back and my chest. I had what they call costochondritis. So I was at the primary doctor then um, trying to figure out, okay, now where's this pain coming from? And so then they said it might be a pulled muscle. And, you know, the whole time I'm thinking, how am I pulling all these muscles? Like usually when you pull a muscle or get injured, you feel that moment that it happens or shortly after, um, if not the next day, right? And so there was never an incident or occurrence where I was like, I think I did this to cause this. Um, so they were thinking, oh, well, maybe it's you know, fibromyalgia or allergies, you know, something could just be causing this inflammation in your chest if it's not a pulled muscle. So that was the next you know, doctors that we saw.
1: So based on that did you follow up with another specialist like an allergist or any other type of doctor
2: well so then after the costochondritis kind of started to tone down a little bit and mind you it was not a quick process i remember having to sleep almost sitting up on the couch for like two months because laying on my back and that body weight was excruciatingly painful and that's with like pain medication so it was a really tough um, month or two. And once that finally settled, it went to my neck. So I just woke up one day and really couldn't turn my neck anymore. And the pain was just like pain I've never experienced before. Um, So then we went back to the doctor because we were just not really sure what was going on at that point.
1: Now that you have these developing symptoms, pain throughout your body, not being able to sleep, what did the doctor say at this point?
2: So they sent me to a rheumatologist because they said, now you're having these, you know, different inflammatory responses, um, the last several months. So we think you need to talk to someone who knows a little bit more about possible autoimmune diseases.
1: And then I'm guessing the next step would be you followed up with a rheumatologist, correct?
2: Yep. So we saw the first rheumatologist, um, and I remember it was actually on my birthday, so that was a real joy, um, because I remember going in for the test results on my birthday, because was, it was around Christmas, so they didn't have many appointments available, and they told me, we don't know what's wrong with you, but you have a positive ANA. So that was kind of the first um, hint that there was something, you know, medically, internally going on because they said you have a positive ANA, but we have no idea what's wrong with you. We think you should go to Mayo Clinic. And that's what the first rheumatologist said.
1: Now, at this point for our listeners, high ANA is their non-specific autoimmune markers.
2: Is- yep. Yep. So it was telling them that I was having an autoimmune response, but they ran a bunch of other tests for specific autoimmune diseases like lupus, uh, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, Sjogren's, um, I think MS was on there. So there was a panel of tests that they ran, and those were all coming back negative.
1: So at this point, we have to say you've had many, many classic Lyme disease symptoms from the body pain to the migrating pain now to these autoimmune-like conditions with no autoimmune disease to be found from your testing. Did any doctor you have seen throughout the many at this point ever indicate you could have Lyme disease?
2: Yes. So actually the next doctor that I saw, because the next symptom that came up was terrible migraines. Um, So I was still dealing with the neck situation and I started getting migraines. I've had headaches throughout my life, like sinus headaches, allergy headaches, like here and there but migraines is a whole nother story and I had never had a migraine before Um, I was having like visual disturbances with it um, like numbness of my face and tongue um, eye twitching like so these migraines were just coming with uh, nausea dizziness they were coming with so many symptoms Um, So then they sent me to a neurologist because now that the migraines kicked in, they figured, well, this might be like something going on with that symptom. Um, And the very first neurologist that I saw at the time, I didn't think much of it, but he did test for Lyme disease um, just using the basic CDC test. And I really didn't think twice about it back then. And it came back negative initially. And they did not you know, pursue additional testing on that when it did come back negative.
1: So what was that discussion like with your neurologist when he told you that the test came back negative? Did he or she indicate to you that these tests were not accurate, that there should be some additional follow-up, that potentially there could be a clinical diagnosis based on your classic symptoms? Was any of that discussed with your neurologist?
2: No. Actually, if I recall, there was not even a discussion because that stuff was negative, They just sent it electronically um, through the MyChart, and that was that. You know, it was kind of a closed book at that point.
1: So one of the common things I think many Lani's find is they get kicked from specialist to specialist to specialist, and you're no exception to that, where you went from a rheumatologist to a physiatrist to a rheumatologist to a neurologist, and it sounds like even eventually a cardiologist. So do you think that you fit into that classic pattern of just being bounced around from specialist to specialist to specialist?
2: Yeah, absolutely. What we learned was anytime there was a new symptom, they wouldn't just address the symptom. I was sent to a new specialist correlating with that symptom. So it was like, you're migraines. Well, you got to see a neurologist. Um, Then when my neck got worse, it it was like, now you got to go to a spine doctor. Um, So it, and you know, it was just kind of like each symptom was a different specialist versus like somebody saying, hey, let's take a look at the whole body. Could there be one disease that is causing all these symptoms that this healthy woman, you know, now has?
1: So let's talk about, did any of these doctors prescribe you medication to just treat the symptoms and not really focus too much on the root cause? Or are they just bouncing you around and not giving you any sort of relief at all?
2: Um, so there was, I did see um, a couple different, like I said, I saw the orthopedic, I saw a spine specialist, uh, my first pain management doctor, um, which actually that was an interesting experience because they were convinced that my neck could be fixed with, uh, injections. And at that point in time, I mean, I was so, I was in so much pain. I couldn't turn my head, let alone do simple things, um, like drive or, you know, even hardly cook, which was something that I really loved. So I'm like anything, right? Just, just do anything. And, um, they gave me six injections in my neck at one time, which looking back, I'm like, I don't know how I agreed to that. But again, when you're desperate. Um, so I remember getting those injections, which didn't even hardly hurt because I was in so much pain and they were steroid injections. So as you can imagine, when you learn about Lyme disease, steroids can hinder um, healing or make things worse for a lot of people. So we didn't know at the time, but we can now go back and pinpoint that when I got those injections, that's when my neck pain got even worse. And when um, other symptoms started to go downhill, that was really like a downhill uh, turning point for me. At
1: this point, it's totally understandable. I mean, you're, you're probably experiencing the worst pain you've ever felt in your life. That's really hard to even explain to people who haven't been through it, I'm sure. And they're recommending things that can help you feel better. So you're, you're do, willing to do whatever it takes. And little do you know that this treatment is actually making you even worse, it sounds like, with the steroids.
2: Yeah, we can definitely go back and pinpoint. While I was in a pretty decent amount of pain, I was still pretty functionable. Um, after the injections, it was like, everything became harder. And that's when um, I lost more of my independence.
1: Was, did any of your doctors put a connection together that these steroids, which should have helped you in their mind, made you so much worse and maybe they were on the wrong path and there was something else they should be considering as you know, to what is the root cause of your, your real illness that's going on?
2: They didn't because after that point, it was recommended that I see a more experienced and kind of higher level rheumatologist. So we saw somebody at one of the universities and she was a good doctor and, you know, she did agree that something was wrong with me, but their attitude was kind of nothing's coming back positive on these panels except the ANA. So my ANA was, I think, 1280, which is about as high as it goes. So in their mind, they're like, we think you have some type of autoimmune disease, but nothing's coming back positive on these individual panels. So we'll see you back in six months and see if anything changes. In the meantime, we'll put you in physical therapy for your pain, which I will say, um, uh, you know, now looking back, physical therapy has been so helpful for me. But again, back then, that was not like, that was not, you know, going to be a treatment.
1: So actually, as you know, my story is very similar to your story and many of our other podcast guests where they go to a rheumatologist, they have these very high ANA levels, but nothing pops for a specific autoimmune disease. And then they're told just to come back in a year or six months and to try physical therapy where their symptoms just continue to get worse, right? So it seems to us that maybe rheumatologists need to be more aware of Lyme disease and the autoimmune component of it. To help people like you and i and the over 100 guests we've interviewed to get a quicker diagnosis would you agree with that
2: 100 percent. yeah um because even when i did get diagnosed and we went back to that rheumatologist to just let them know she, i remember her reaction she was pretty shocked um she was like wow i never have seen a patient with lyme disease come in with these symptoms so It was, um, she was very open to learning, which was good, but she definitely had no idea that that's what it could have been.
1: I think there's a little foreshadowing here about for the tail end of this podcast, where you're going to focus, we're going to focus on your efforts to raise awareness, which is critically needed specifically in the auto uh, autoimmune community and the rheumatologist community. So walk us through your next doctor and how you eventually led up to your Lyme diagnosis?
2: Yeah. So after that, um, we saw another neurologist because the migraines were getting worse and I was getting a lot of neuropathy, um, lots of nerve type sensations and pain. I was losing feeling in my hands, um, having a lot of like nerve pain and shooting in my legs. And then there was a really scary moment that I remember um, to this day, the first time it happened where I completely lost feeling in my arm. I just remember looking at it and it was lying there and I couldn't move it. And I was like telling my arm to move and I couldn't move it. And I just, it unless you've experienced it, it's very hard to explain, but it was just the most, one of the most terrifying moments in my entire life. And that's when they were like, okay, you need to go see another neurologist because some there is something that is not getting picked up here. Um, so we saw another neurologist who was basically like, we think you're having like hemiplegic migraines, which is like stroke, like migraines, which could be causing the, um, paralysis and nerve pain and all the numbness and tingling. Um, so they wanted to just put me on different medications to treat the migraines. When we said, could this be something more? They were kind of like convinced, like, well, we just think it's migraines. Um, So they weren't very, you know, they weren't really thinking they needed to explore more. He was pretty confident, like migraines can cause a lot of symptoms. I think that's why you have neck pain. I think that's why you're losing feeling. I think, you know, he tried to kind of say that that was the answer for all of my symptoms.
1: So many of these symptoms have, in our past interviews with other guests, have cause doctors to say this is all in their head, right? Like not being able to move parts of your body. So at any point in your journey, did anybody in your family, your social circle, or your, do- your team of doctors indicate that this could have been a mental health issue causing all of your symptoms? Or were you always confident that there was a physical component to your illness?
2: So I feel fortunate that I never had to deal with that specific accusation um, throughout my journey with different practitioners because I know it's a devastating thing to go through. However, I think that that positive ANA is the tiny breadcrumb that gave me the treatment that I received that, that allowed them to at least listen to me. Um, And I think back and I'm like, had I not had that ANA, I probably would have been brushed off. I mean, I don't even know if I would have been referred out at that point.
1: And right before your diagnosis, I believe you started to experience some heart-related symptoms as well. Can you talk to us about those?
2: Yeah, so I experienced um, tachycardia and shortness of breath, um, dizziness, and just like doing things that were pretty simple became really difficult, like exerting myself physically, just like cleaning or like picking toys up off the ground. Um, something so simple could send me into like a tachycardic episode um, to where I would have to lay down with my legs up to try to get my heart rate back down so I can like see straight and breathe again. Um, And so that, and I truly believe that those symptoms only came on because I, you know, didn't get treated, um, you know, quick enough.
1: Did any doctor ever discuss with you the possibility of having POTS? Because many Lyme patients have a POTS diagnosis, which you know we believe is a, a byproduct of Lyme disease, and that's the the inability to really regulate your heart rate when you go from one position to another, or laying down to a standing up position. Has that ever been discussed with you and your doctors?
2: Yes. So I was eventually diagnosed with POTS. Um, after I had got my Lyme diagnosis and worked with a Lyme doctor. Um, They diagnosed me with POTS after doing those tests and then just going off um, my, you know, day-to-day symptoms and with POTS, you know, it's definitely not just the heart rate. So I deal with like temperature, um, issues like my temperature can't regulate itself. So one minute I'm sweating or like I'm in chills and I'm wearing a winter coat and hat in my house, which people think is ridiculous, but unless you've experienced it, um, what else, you know, it just causes, um, all sorts of issues, you know, like you said, with the autonomic nervous system, So the things your body does that you don't think about because they just happen naturally, when that goes uh, in disarray, it's just, it's miserable. You know, it's just, you have no control over it.
1: So before we talk about your official diagnosis, looking back at your experience before you got diagnosed for those who are listening and have similar symptoms, whether it be cardiac or POTS, what advice would you give them that you wish you had then to help treat their symptoms while they're going through this period of their life?
2: So some of the best advice that I can give looking back is to always, always be your own advocate. Um, If one doctor says that you need to wait it out or they don't know what's wrong with you, keep searching. Um, You know, there's good and bad doctors out there just like there's good and bad people or there's knowledgeable and then less knowledgeable. Um, So one thing I would say is like, do not settle. If they don't know what's wrong with you and if they're unsure because over the course of a year and a half I received possible diagnoses of rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, MS, um what else? fibromyalgia, migraines. Um so if you don't feel like you got the answer that feels right to you, then keep pushing. And if you know, if you have to see a hundred doctors, then do what it takes because you know your body better than anyone, and your body is such a well-oiled, built machine that it doesn't give you symptoms unless there's something wrong. That is a signal from your body saying, "Hey, hello, pay attention to this. Something's out of balance. Like I need help." And I think that had I, you know, even been more um, aware of that, maybe I would have pushed um, to kind of see doctors sooner than waiting a few months in between.
1: So now here you are almost two years into your s- symptoms and trying to figure out what's wrong with you. And somebody referred you to a Lyme later doctor out of state. So who, who referred you to that doctor? And what was it like when you finally met with this Lyme later doctor and got your Lyme diagnosis?
2: Yeah, so one of my old coworkers and good friends Had read about Lyme disease in a magazine article, and I think it was in Rolling Stone, I want to say. And she had heard about it through a friend as well. And, you know, she knew a little bit about my journey. And she's like, you know, I don't want to impose, but I just have this feeling that you might want to look into Lyme disease. She's like, you know, all your symptoms, because I also had fevers and chills. Um, I also had like the basic infection symptoms like that, too, so she 's like, I just feel that you need to you need to pursue this um, so actually, we did see two different infectious disease doctors in Chicago at prominent university hospitals who told us that without a positive cDC test there 's no way I have Lyme disease. Um, they said. And the one of them said that it's it's impossible to have Lyme disease if you don't have a positive CDC test. Um, So then we kind of started asking around, does anybody know of a Lyme doctor in some of the Facebook groups and stuff that I was in? And we got referred. Somebody knew the name of one in Wisconsin um, because at that point we were kind of done with Chicago. And we went up to Wisconsin to this Lyme literate doctor. And that was when, before they even did a blood test, based on all my symptoms and test results and history from the other doctors, they were like, we are certain you have Lyme disease, but we will run this blood test, um, you know, just to confirm it. And they did Igenix. So it was sent to California. And that's a more, um, that test has been used by many because it's more accurate than the CDC test. And, you know, sure enough, we got the positive diagnosis from there.
0: So now let's focus on the diagnosis and how you feel at the moment you get the diagnosis. Are you feeling validated? Are you feeling excited? Are you feeling upset? What does the diagnosis do for you emotionally?
2: So I still remember that day. And I will profess that being we live in the Chicago suburbs, going up to Wisconsin for the doctor, we're in the car for a good almost five hours with traffic. It's like two and a half there, two and a half back. So it was a long car ride back after that. Um, but I I remember it was mixed emotions, but I did feel a huge sense of relief and felt like somebody finally listened to us and that, you know, I knew something was wrong and we finally figured it out. And I, I, at that moment, I felt like my life was gonna be downhill from there because I didn't know all of the controversy and complications about Lyme disease that I know today. So at that moment, I think we felt like we were gonna get our life back.
0: Okay, so now did you use this diagnosis as a vehicle for you to begin to explain to friends, for example, what was wrong with you and why you couldn't be the friend that you had been in hopes of trying to reunite with the folks who you had lost contact with?
2: Yeah, we, you know, started telling people that we got a diagnosis. And to be honest, there wasn't a whole lot of feedback. I remember there was even like some, there was a friend that I was close with that when I had told her we were texting and stuff, it was like crickets. Um, I just think that people thought like, oh, okay, like no big deal. Like, she'll be fine. They'll give her medicine. And, um, you know, it wasn't, we didn't receive like a whole lot of feedback about it.
0: So you were hoping that your Lyme diagnosis was now going to give you the ability to explain to everyone what was wrong with you. And you thought that would result in some healing in your social circles. And unfortunately that didn't work.
2: It didn't. No, no, unfortunately not.
0: Now, were you also of the mind that you are going to be able to get a quick treatment for this um, illness and go back to work and begin to contribute to the uh, financial um, elements of your family?
2: Well, our doctor is very knowledgeable. So she did prepare us and kind of give us the spiel that, you know, you're going to get worse before you get better, most likely. So we did know at that point that there was going to be a little bit of a bumpy road But being the optimistic, you know, positive-minded people we are, we felt like, okay, well, there'll be like a little bit of a challenge, but we'll be able to bounce back from this. Um, And actually, during um, towards, uh, when was it? It was before my diagnosis, um, I actually ended up going back to school to get certified in integrative nutrition because I was starting to feel kind of fed up with the situation of doctors not being able to help me. And this was like, I just felt like it was calling me and I was like, I am gonna learn to help myself and then help other people. Um, So that's what really pushed me away from my other career. So I wasn't necessarily anticipating going back to my old job. I was looking towards um, continuing my education and uh, jumping into this new endeavor.
0: So let's focus on that for a minute. So you're now in a position where you've gone to several doctors, some of the leading uh, specialists in one of the um, top hospitals in the country, and you decide that you now want to go through a career change where you can now learn to help yourself and help others who have been failed by the medical community. Talk to us about that portion of your journey and why you decided to go the route you went.
2: Yeah, so... I will say that this wasn't the first time that I was disappointed by the medical community, unfortunately. When I was younger, in my um, young 20s, I was diagnosed with IBS and interstitial cystitis. And those conditions kind of came as a surprise because, again, I was a very active, you know, um, physical person and, and very, what I would say, healthy at the time. But I did have a lot of stress. And, I, and I, looking back, I know that maybe that contributed to some of that. So when the medical community couldn't help me with those conditions that they said were chronic, um, I started to do my own research. And I was able to put those conditions into what I would call remission, um, just based on nutrition changes and lifestyle changes that I made. So before I got Lyme disease, I was actually – in terms of health, I was at the pinnacle of my health. Um, I was eating, you know, an organic, like healthy, you know, whole foods based diet. Um, I was doing yoga, exercising, all that. So, um, that was part of the fuel for it. But then when the Lyme disease stuff hit and, you know, I was back in this like familiar situation of, well, here I am again. And the medical community is basically just saying that there's nothing more they can do. Um, you know, that was like enough is enough. Like I remember saying, I'm tired of like band-aid fixes. Um, I want to be able to figure this out and I figured it out before, so I'm going to figure it out again. Um, and I want to be able to inspire others to, you know, take their own health into their hands because I know how complicated this medical system is and there's so much power in Um, personal wellness, and being able to know how to take care of yourself.
0: So you decided you you were going to become a health and wellness coach. Tell us how you made the decision to pursue that discipline and what educational courses you took to ultimately gain that certification.
2: Yeah, so I had looked at a couple different programs, but I was very fascinated with nutrition. And so I know I wanted that to be a big component of it. But I know I didn't want to be a dietitian. I didn't want to go back um, to school for several years. But, you know, it wasn't even just that. It was that I knew they didn't teach about the other components that are so important to healing, um, like energy and mindset and um, your career and are your relationships balanced. Um, So I knew that a dietitian wasn't going to teach me those things. But I knew that I loved food. And I love teaching people about food because during this time I had started my Instagram, um, as a way to basically it was therapeutic for me. Um, cooking and coming up with healthy recipes was a way that I got through some of the pain, um, on Saturdays and Sundays, I would spend like all day cooking. Um, because during those hours, It was a distraction from what I was physically enduring because it brought me joy and it took me out of my body for a little bit. Um, Not that it took the pain away, but it made it so it was a little bit more manageable. Um, So I knew I wanted to include those aspects in it. Um, And that's where I found the Institute for Integrative Nutrition because, as a certified integrative nutrition coach, they don't just teach you about what you call primary nutrition. So that's like your food, you know, all your regimens and things like that. They teach about secondary nutrition too, which is what I talked about with like energy, mindset, relationships. Um, Do you have that balance? And they say that you're not really healthy if you don't have both of those things balanced, like body, mind, and soul.
0: So one of the things actually I do want to share with you just so that, Um, the folks in your community are aware there is actually a wonderful Lyme literate doctor in Chicago. Now, um, Dr. Uh, Casey Kelly, um, who from case integrative medicine, who I think, People in your community and people in communities outside of uh, Chicago uh, should consider working with because although during the course of the time you were on your journey, there wasn't someone who was capable of doing that work, you now have somebody who I think is probably one of the most competent doctors in the country capable of helping folks deal with their Lyme literacy issues and their, I'm sorry, their Lyme disease issues. So, So can you talk to us about the doctors that you were treating with and what kinds of treatment they recommended to you and how they worked for you?
2: Yeah. And I just want to pipe in and share too that um, Dr. Kelly is amazing. And since um, learning about her being here, um, I actually go to her office and I see a neurologist that works with her as well. So we have become um, pretty close with Dr. Kelly now. And that is actually where I send um, when people ask for referrals in Chicago and Illinois now. Um, I feel really fortunate that I can tell them about her. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Um, And yeah, so with the treatment with my doctor in Wisconsin, um, who again, they're great doctors and I'm so fortunate, but it's a hike, you know, to be driving out of state every time um, to see the appointment for your appointment. So my mind at first was I'm going to do this thing holistically Um, because I had read a couple books and stuff about people taking herbs and using like nutrition. So when we first started treatment, I was like, we're going to do this thing herbal. We're going to, I'm going to like, um, alter my diet and we're going to just kick this thing the natural way. Well, you know, little did I know that that wasn't going to work for my situation. So gave it a good, you know, shot, but unfortunately, I just got sicker. So we did add in um, oral antibiotics. And, you know, again, it was one of those things where I wasn't, that wasn't what I was hoping for. But I knew that to beat this disease for me personally, it was going to be a mixture of um, holistic things and medication. And I I knew that that was going to be an important component. Um, So I was on the oral antibiotics for Quite a while for several months um, and we saw some improvements but you know again I just felt like things were getting worse and especially um, neurologically so cognitively I was having more issues lots of brain fog um, even like sleep insomnia um, and then like just my memory I am a what you would call since I was a child I have a photographic memory People would always tell me that. Um, and I could just, I picture things and that and I can remember something that I learned when I was five, right? So when my memory started to go, which was something that was just always there and so sharp, um, that's when things got a little scary. Um I remember some times where that kicked in too, where I started my car with the garage shut and my car was running and my son was in the car. And like, I, I didn't know like what was going on. And then like a couple of minutes later, I'm like, Oh my God, I didn't open the garage. Like just something that a normally would be like a never do this. And your brain just, so this was on the oral antibiotics. And I also remember like going to a drive through to get food and I drove away, I paid them and then I drove away and then I got to my mom's house and she was like, where's the food? And I'm like, Oh my God. I, so, I mean, it was at that point, um, around then too, when I kind of gave up driving because I knew that it wasn't safe anymore. Um, but so the oral antibiotics weren't working. Um, they knew I needed something stronger because also my pain was getting worse and the neuropathy and, uh, losing feeling in my limbs and stuff that was not getting better. So that's when they recommended IV antibiotics.
1: Um, Ashley, real quick. Do you think that the oral antibiotics weren't working because they couldn't treat the neurological Lyme disease? Many of our past guests have indicated that oral antibiotics cannot get through the, the blood brain barrier and therefore can't treat neurological Lyme the way you need it to.
2: Yeah, I definitely, I definitely believe that.
1: So that would be a cautionary tale for those listening who have neurological symptoms and are being treated with oral antibiotics that most likely they won't work because they can't get through to treat the neurological symptoms.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: And what type of herbs were you using before you went on the oral antibiotics? Were you using a protocol? Were you sort of just doing it yourself and you know, mixing and matching herbs? How did you take that uh, approach?
2: It was through my Lyme doctor. Um, I was using now, and I don't want to knock these herbs because I know other people who have really good success with them and I use them. Um, I have used them since and I found like they were more beneficial. Some um, mento and banderol and, you know, kind of that antimicrobial um, protocol and a lot of different supplements to try to um, just help my body, you know, better be able to fight and detox and things like that.
1: Did you at any time use a combination of herbs and antibiotics or did you go from the herbs, stop and then do the oral antibiotics?
2: So we were doing a combination of both. Um, My regimen has kind of always had a little bit of, an herbal component and supplement component, and then the medicine component.
1: Was it one antibiotic you were using or were you using combination therapy, multiple antibiotics at once? Yeah, we
2: tried a different, we tried a few different oral antibiotics, Um, doxycycline, azithromycin. um, What's that other one that's red? I I have a blank, but there was a rifampin. That was not a fun one. Um, See, I blanked it from my mind because I didn't like that one. (laughs) Um, So yeah, it was a different combination of things.
1: So once you realized with your Lyme litter doctor that the oral antibiotics were not working and you were continuing to get worse, you then went on and actually got IV antibiotics. So can you walk us through what that was like from your perspective? You know, you're going in, did you get a port put in and, and how did that help you moving forward?
2: Yeah, so from the time that my doctor was like, I think you definitely need IV antibiotics to the time when I did my first dose was almost eight months, I believe. Um, And that wasn't by choice, but we had to submit it to insurance and we knew it was slim. But at the time, we just didn't feel like we could financially afford because again, this wouldn't be our only medical bill. We were still paying off you know, medical bills from the last like two years. Um, So we didn't know if we could feasibly afford to pay for the IV antibiotics out of pocket. So we kept hoping that insurance was going to come through. And we kept fighting with them um, for months. And we kept so what happened is we kept appealing. So they said, like, you need to appeal. So we would, they would say, you don't have arthritis, you don't have uh, neurological complications, and you don't have heart issues related to it. Yet we had all of those. So we continued to submit every single diagnosis, um, including all of those symptoms. And it came down to it, I eventually um, even sent them pictures of my swollen joints, because that was how frustrated we were that they kept Coming back and saying, You don't have arthritis. Well, I had multiple doctors say I have arthritis. I was on arthritis medication. So I'm like, I'll send you pictures then. (laughs) Um, So eventually, you know, we decided we're going to do, we're going to figure this out and pay for this on our own. And they finally agreed to pay for the installation of the PIC line, but that was about it. Um, And so we're like, We're going to figure out how to do this. And so then I, towards the end of that year, it was like, uh, I think it was right after Thanksgiving, um, got the PICC line put in. And then we were kind of on our own for paying for the IVs and all that. So I had the central line in my arm. um, And what it does is it delivers the medication to your heart to be pumped throughout your veins throughout your body. So it can get into your brain and Um, your spine into different areas that's harder for the oral antibiotics to reach and I had that pick line for uh, just around a year.
1: And how much was it costing you out of pocket to pay for these antibiotics because it wasn't covered by insurance?
2: So some months um, with all the nursing and the IVs um, because it wasn't there was uh, different medications I was doing with the PIC line and then the other medical expenses I had to see my doctors, we were somewhere almost around $4,000 a month for some months.
1: And what was it like when you first started this IV treatment with antibiotics? Did you feel better right away? Was it about the same? And then how did it progress over time?
2: So initially, um, it definitely, I did not see improvements right away. And that was something that a lot of, a lot of people were frustrated about. Um, not necessarily us cause we like had the patience. but people are like, why aren't you getting better? Um, cause they thought that this pick line was going to be, you know, the savior right away, but it took probably um, maybe four or five months. We stuck with it. And then we started to see some changes and some improvements.
1: And then how much longer did you stay on the IV antibiotics for after you started to see the improvements?
2: For about another five or six months after that.
1: And at this point now, five or six months after that, what was your life like? What were you able to do that you couldn't do before thanks to the IV antibiotics?
2: Um, so I, I definitely noticed um, some improvements in my independence. So even though I had a pick line, which you would think would be kind of a hindrance And it was in some ways, um, I was finding myself to be more independent. So I wasn't able to go to like stores for a while. I couldn't like grocery shop or go to target. Target was so tough because of, I think it was due to, um, the sensory overload, my doctor said, and like with pots and stuff. So I would go to target before and I would end up crying in my car unable to see straight and would be so dizzy and out of breath that my husband had to come pick me up before. So I was able to go back to target. I was able to start grocery shopping again. Um, I felt more confident taking my son places. So like before I was very hesitant to take him anywhere like by myself, but I was regaining confidence to drive him places and take him places um, you know, just for like play dates and things like that, like that me and him could do. Um, and I was having some, um, improvement with the migraines um, some, and some other uh, fevers and things like that. So I was seeing improvements in some of the other symptoms as well.
1: What caused you to stop taking these antibiotics and your central line taken out? Was it your progress? Was it a financial component or a combination of factors?
2: Um, It was a combination, and I'm going to be honest, because there was such good improvements, I was like, I was very, um, it was very unnerving to get the pick line out. Um, It's not something that you want to keep in, but it had become a lifeline for me. Um, I was very scared as to what was going to happen when this thing came out because of the independence and the improvements I had gained. So they had said from the get-go, we're not going to do this more than 12 months. Um, So at that point, based on, you know, where I was and the timeline, you know, that's kind of when it was time for that to come out. So talk to us
1: what that was like when you took this central line out and now you're, you're living life without this. Were you going back to oral antibiotics? Were you doing anything else or did you just stop treatment altogether?
2: So... It was a lot of, like I said, it was a lot of mixed emotions when I got my pick line out. Um, I remember leading up to it that whole week, I was like so on edge because again, I had seen like how I was able to do more. And I even was able to go um, like to the Global Lima Lion Gala in New York and fly out there with my pick line. And like a year before that, I wouldn't have been like doing anything like that because of the... um, the overwhelm and the physical symptoms. So it had given me, you know, a lot of, um, improvement. And so they wanted to see where my body was at. So we didn't like start into any, um, treatment right away. So they wanted to kind of see like where, what my body is going to do on its own.
1: And you also mentioned in your pre-interview question there that you tried something called IV light therapy. At what point did you get this and what was that like? And can you explain for our listeners what it is?
2: Yeah. So that's something that I didn't do for long um, because looking back, we did it at a time that probably wasn't the, the best time because I was also on IV antibiotics. It's something that I may look into into the future because I just think there's so many benefits. But um, basically it's an IV that goes in your arm with saline and these UV lights help to, um, they they kill bacteria in the blood. They help to uh, promote oxygen to, uh, for circulation. So it's, I, and I don't, I got to be careful because I don't want to say it's just like ozone because it's not. But I feel like it's kind of in that category of treatments um, in terms of what it does to your blood and kind of helps to um, really regenerate and like kill off some of the pathogens, Um, it was too strong for me. So we ended up not, you know, sticking with it for as long as it would have taken because we found out it was just too much um, die off between that and the IV antibiotics because it hit me hard, um, which also kind of speaks to its, um, you know, its benefits because if, if it caused me to herx like that, then it obviously was doing something.
1: So now we're gonna go back to when you stopped the antibiotics. Your, your Lyme litter doctor wanted to see where your body was at on its own. And where was it at?
2: Um, so, you know, the journey was not over yet because we, around that time is when we found out that I have mold toxicity. So that was kind of like peeling the onion. Um, we were like, why are some of these symptoms still here? And then that's when we ran tests and stuff. And we found out that I had mold in my body.
1: So many of our our followers on social media and our previous podcast guests have always asked what kind of tests are out there and which ones are reputable to get tested for mold in your body and also test your home. So what advice would you give them to test for mold toxicity in their body and also have some sort of mold test be done in their home?
2: Um, Yeah, so... What I did was a urinalysis from Great Plains Labs. And I think you need a practitioner to fill out the forms, but it's a really easy test that you just do at home and then you send it in and it's a pretty quick um, response time. So they test for your mold levels and they tell you what different types of mold that you have in your body as well. Um, With regards to the home testing, that's something I'm still learning more about, but we recently moved. So we did have actually two different companies come out to test this house um, before we purchased it. And there's an ERMI test that I know a lot of people use, but we had um, an environmental specialist come out and they used a couple different tests. So I can't remember the name of them, but they were like, these guys were like the real deal. Um, they knew like more about mold than I've ever, you know, could imagine somebody knew. So they were good. But um, yeah, I know the Ermi test is one that people can do on their own, um, just ordering it online.
1: So did you do anything to treat the mold toxicity, or was your was your driving factor that you moved out of your your mold infested home, and that allowed you then to heal and recover by that by that one piece alone?
2: Yeah, so I will preface too, we never found mold in our house. So that's another, you know, interesting component of all this. Um, However, we do know that we were all exposed on many occasions at a family member's house um, who had a very bad mold problem. And so when I had talked to some of the specialists, they said that mold can uh, store in your fat tissue and can come back out and stuff. So it was kind of, a, kind of a crazy situation. We don't know for sure where I was exposed. It was probably multiple places to make, you know, so that's a whole other um, aspect of things. But we started doing a lot of um, detoxing and just trying to, you know, get the mold. And that was not just for me, but because we don't know where the mold could be, um, we just started detoxing everybody just in case.
1: And what was your Lyme litter doctor saying at this point? Was he, was he advising you or were you doing this on your own with another doctor or just based on your own research? To-
2: um, it was through my Lyme doctor and also um, just kind of based on some things I learned as well. Um, things like binders. So taking a binder is really important um, if you're exposed to mold ever, um, because that can help to pull it out of your body. And just kind of learning about mold in foods because I have okra toxin which can be found in food as well. So again, it's like so hard to say where all the places that this exposure can come from, but I learned about what foods you know you have to be careful with um, because if you consume a lot of foods that can have mold, you're not gonna have like massively toxic amounts, but it can certainly hinder your healing in that area too.
1: What are your thoughts on some of the, the concerns people have about these treatments, like using a binder for example, there are concerns that you're gonna you're gonna pull out your good nutrients as well in addition to these toxins and you're gonna flush your system of good nutrients. And then alternatively, there are options like coffee enemas and many people believe coffee enemas are amazing to detox your body and others feel that they're very high risk. So how did you weigh the risk versus reward component of all of your options to treat this mold toxicity?
2: So you're about the fifth person who's told me about coffee enemas in the last like two weeks. So I almost feel like it's a sign from the universe for me and I'm not, I will say I'm not against them. I just haven't felt like it's for me yet. Um, but you know, with the binders and maybe it's just because of my, um, education and background in nutrition, but I knew that if you take these things correctly, that, um, I'm not going to be, you know, I eat well, I make sure I get a lot of nutrients, I supplement where I'm low on things. So I never felt like these binders were going to harm the good nutrients. Um, And it's important when you take them too. So, and that becomes a challenge sometimes because I take mine like at night, um, you know, after I had already taken like my medications and other supplements and stuff, because yeah, if you take a binder, at the same time you take another herb or medication, there is the chance that it might uh, not work as effectively. So just kind of finding that right timing is important too.
1: Now, once you've moved out of your home and you started to address the mold, it seems like that was the tail end of your healing journey and, and getting us closer today. So were there any other, any other hurdles you experienced or did that, does that lead us up to today, the timeline of your, your-
2: yeah, so I always look at this whole journey as like a peeling of the onion because I feel like just when we would find uh, one issue or find like a solution to one issue, there would be the next one kind of waiting. And and to this day, I still feel like that's what this journey is like. Um, so once we kind of addressed, um, you know, mold toxicity and watching out for foods and making sure we find a home that is like completely, you know, no issues or water issues. Um, That was important for moving forward. But also, um, you know, I think my immune system is the one component that, you know, it's still the part of the journey because I have immune deficiencies um, that I did not have before this before Lyme disease. So I have low IgG subclasses. So that's something that we have to keep an eye on and we have to, um, you know, continue to work on because having a strong immune system is so important to keep these pathogens at bay. Um, And then actually as of late, we've kind of um, found another component that I never knew was there and we're exploring the possibility of viruses now. Um, I came down with shingles this year, uh, about a month and a half ago. And we're now realizing that it's a pretty persistent case of shingles and we're starting to test and explore for the possibility that some of these uh, like herpes family viruses could be also um, have what not hindered, but could have been part of the um, why I didn't get better quicker.
1: All in all, it seems like you've come a really long way. You you look great, you sound great, you're clearly very smart and the brain fog is gone. So what percentage would you say you're back to your old self from the time you got sick up until the present date?
2: I would say I'm somewhere between like sixty-five and seventy percent now.
0: So now Ashley, let's talk about the second journey that you were on while you were going through your healing journey. You Before your diagnosis, you started to go through a new educational process. And I'd like you to share with our listeners how the educational process helped you with your healing and how your healing helped you to understand more about the educational process.
2: Sure. So I believe that um, going to integrative nutrition and getting that certification was just such a big part of my healing because it's a part of... um, it's a part of healing that i just my eyes were not open to before this journey um i had kind of the food thing down pat and the exercise and the yoga um i was just kind of getting more involved with yoga when this started um but that mindset and energy component that's something i just wasn't aware of and when i became aware of that um through my education and then i i always feel like I go down the rabbit hole. So, when I figure one thing out, then I kind of learn about a book or a professional or somebody that I can learn more from. So, I got really in depth with that like mindset um, component of healing. And I really believe that that was like the key that I was missing as well. Like, had I known that sooner, would I have gotten better sooner? I don't know. I can't go back, but. Once that whole door opened for me, I realized that there's I have so much more power than I knew and that like my mindset and energy was so crucial to healing because the medicine is great and it's helpful and the herbs are great. But if I didn't figure out all the other junk in my life um, that was causing stress, or you know what do they say they call it dis ease right like or unease if I didn't figure all that stuff out I don't know if I would be where I'm at today because um, you got I had to work on all those other things that were weighing me down.
0: Now actually you've pivoted from working on your own healing to now reaching out and helping other folks heal. How did that develop in your journey, especially since you were so sick and you had so many problems, how did you go from being a person who was trying to heal herself to now reaching out to the larger community and giving back to the Lyme community?
2: So when I first started um, sharing my personal journey and speaking out, I always said that if I can help just one person, that it's worth it, that it's worth putting myself out there and it's worth you know, because it, it, it's vulnerable at times. And so I said, if I even help just one person get diagnosed or one person get the help they need, it's worth it. And so today, you know, I'm just, I have so much gratitude that it's, you know, I've been able to help a ton of people. And I just felt like going through what myself and my family went through, um, I just didn't want anybody else to have to go through that. If I could somehow help them avoid it or better navigate it, Um, I just felt like at times we were so alone and lost in our journey and I wanted to bring, you know, awareness and I wanted to be someone that people could reach out to for advice, for help, for just support. Um, because like I said, you know, Lyme can be a lonely journey and, um, I just look back and if we knew all these things and if we had this support initially, just how different our journey would have been. But that was, that's the main thing is just, I don't want anyone else to suffer the way that I've suffered because I don't think anybody deserves to go through, um, you know, just the devastation with this disease.
0: So Ashley, now that we're on the part of your transformation where you've now healed enough to now reach out and help other people. And you have a beautiful Instagram and your social media is uh, just really, really well done and really beautifully and, uh, and tastefully done. Um, I want you to talk with us about one more thing so that we can sort of get a sense of how we could help folks not even begin the journey, because we know that Lyme disease um, would not occur if people didn't have contact with ticks. So my question to you is, what advice would you give to someone so that they could avoid coming in contact with ticks and therefore not starting a Lyme disease journey?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you for the kind feedback. Um, My advice would be prevention is key, right? So that that's the goal is to prevent someone from even getting bit by a tick. So there's simple things that can be done, um, such as wearing a bug repellent, and they have more natural ones because I know that's the first concern of many people is I don't want to spray chemicals. Um, they have some great tick uh, repellent formulas with essential oils. There's brands that are more natural. Um, and if you feel, you know, like you need to have something stronger, there's certainly many options, um, in terms of those brands as well. Um, so I would say bug repellent. And then I would say it's just that awareness too. Um, when you're outdoors for a while, just doing a tick check on yourself, your kids, your dog even. Um, and that just, it's just a simple awareness of the fact that ticks could be out there, um. Because if you find a tick before it's able to kind of uh, latch on, you know, you're saving yourself all that trouble. And if someone does get bit, which it happens, um, and I know it can be scary, but I think, you know, having this knowledge is what can help with the fear part of it. Um, When you're aware, you can better be prepared. So saving that tick to send it in to be tested would be great because then you know exactly like what diseases you're possibly dealing with. Um, and then getting into a doctor who knows about ticks and Lyme disease. I can't trust that enough. If someone in your family gets bit, someone, you know, um, not just going to the first doctor, you know, that's in the area, but doing your research to find somebody near you that is Lyme literate, because that is the whole, um, key of this is somebody that knows what they're doing so they can help you best prevent, um, catching one of these diseases.
0: Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Ashley Ivanelli. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Ashley Ivanelli and her tick disease journey, please visit our Instagram at wheatgrass underscore warrior. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.takebootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note, we would appreciate any input or improvements you would like to offer. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Take Bootcamp podcast. And finally, please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes or on our website. Thank you for listening.